Today, the tables are turning. I'm sitting in the hot seat. My interviewer is Cindy Pereira. She joined our team back in 2017 after a career that spanned three busy decades. She was a management consultant for Perot Systems and Dell in the late 90s. Later, she decided to take on an even more demanding mission as a full-time mother of four. In her free time, Cindy is a freelance journalist, a voiceover actress, and a writer. Her interest in people, her generosity, and gregarious nature have connected her to a rich cross-section of humanity. She has interviewed, photographed, and developed countless friendships with the icons of the arts as they pass through our area. Cindy joined my team and quickly became the central nervous system of our firm, ensuring that every client has a first-rate experience. Let's see what she does here. Uh, let's see. She handles all my incoming business requests. She produces the podcast that you're listening to, Nonprofits Are Messy. She convinced me to write my second book. She leads our efforts to develop new and innovative products and services and is a skilled relationship manager. Cindy is also fluent in Portuguese, Spanish, sometimes English, and on a good day can tell people exactly what they need to do in French. More importantly, she may be one of the most hilarious and dedicated people I know. And she is the my guest host today. Cindy, take it away. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Joan, that was so good. I sound wonderful. Don't you? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I just, I, can't, I like me as a I, result of your introduction. I can't even, I just can't <laughs> even. It, it sounded like that there isn't anything you can't do. I know. I but mean, I, I know this. I know better. <laughs> you know all about my math skills. Yes. What math skills? <laughs> I'm loving this turn of events. I like the interviewer seat because, you know, I do that once in a while, but never with you. And now we're actually in the same room. Even though we're on a Zoom, I can see you across the room, which is really nice. So thank you for letting me be your guest host today. You're very welcome. I appreciate that. Um, so we were, th we were talking about, geez, what, what, what's a good podcast so we can share some of your, your books and all the things that you've been um, reading throughout the pandemic and beforehand with folks who are often asking. And, uh, you know, last year, some of us worked from home doing important things. Like I found my grandfather's rotary punch that I brought from Portugal. Uh -huh. And every, every like month, I would just loosen my belt and add a little hole to it. And I, I found that, <laughs> <laughs> that to be very Yes, I, I very actually, important. yeah, I, I, um, I have discovered, I, I got enough ads in my Facebook feed for Noom that I figured I had to try it oh, out. So, <laughs> it, it, by the way, uh, uh, I don't mean to be advertising for Noom, but it does seem to be working. So, oh, good. Well, good. Now so, maybe I won't need that rotary punch anymore. Well, and I'm not going to have to borrow it. I don't think. <laughs> I, I mean, I even did voiceovers about medical waste. All very exciting things. 
But you, however. <laughs> See, this is the thing about Cindy is that she'll just, those will be like little throwaway comments that she'll make, like voiceovers about medical waste. And then you forget, she keeps going, but you're still stuck on medical waste. Like, this is my world. <laughs> well, yes. But, you know, I, my point is that while I was doing things that were hilarious and exciting, yes, you published a book, which is something that's been on my to-do list, as you may or may not know, for quite a while. Well, I did it because you made me. <laughs> Oh, right. About that. I'm very efficient. I made you write a book. Well, that's not exactly how it went down, but I'll take it. Um, and, you know, not only did you write a book, but we invited a bunch of really good authors onto our podcast. We did. And and I noticed that whether it's in the Nonprofit Leadership Lab or in your blog, you're always referencing authors of books that you like. So I feel like you must be reading a lot more than I should, than I do, but should. Um, and I, I wondered, how did reading factor into this pandemic year? Clearly, you, you did a lot of reading and enjoyed it? Did it keep you connected to your family, to your audience, to your clients? Was it like a good ingredient to that? So I, uh, my wife will always tell you that I'm never like totally happy and centered unless I am reading a book. Like if something's out of whack, she'll say, did you just finish a book? Like, have you started a new one? So there's, there's something about reading that is kind of centering for me. And, um, like, I think one of the best one of the best things that I have been involved in with regard to my family happened during the pandemic, and I um, I know that's a very peculiar thing to say, but um, my mom of blessed memory was an identical twin, and my aunt Kathy is ninety three years old, and during the pandemic, obviously was on lockdown in her assisted living facility. Now. When she's on lockdown, she's on lockdown from a posse of children and grandchildren. Oh. She has seven kids, and each of them have a whole posse. Oh, wow. So she was very alone. And my sort of best cousin friend, Jean, who I blogged about not too long ago, who is a hilarious and like kind beyond measure, um, we started talking, and I said, why don't we start a Facebook page? I have 27 first cousins. Why don't we start a Facebook page and we'll call it the Conlon 27. And so we did that. People started posting pictures and stuff, but then we decided to have a book club. So we have the Conlon 27 book club and we meet every three weeks and it runs anywhere between, I'd say sort of seven to 13 of the 27, depending on what book we're reading. And it's fantastic. My Aunt Kathy keeps thanking me and my cousin Aww. Jean endlessly, but we should be thanking her because it connected to us, us to our families. It gave us a way to think about books in different ways. It was able, we were able to tie books to my, my aunt's experience of growing up at a time when we weren't, you know, we weren't there. And so um, it has been a gloriously uh, wonderful experience, and we have continued. We are about a year in, because I think we started in May of last year. Wow, and so you didn't give it up even though the pandemic is loosening up? You still look forward to it? Oh, it's it's a non-negotiable now, it seems. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's awesome. So, but a lot of the books that I hear, I personally hear you talking about are nonfiction um, and of interest specifically to nonprofit leaders. Would you say that's like the bulk of what you read? Like, what are you reading now? No, I, I wouldn't say so, although the book club actually kept me with a regular book throughout the pandemic. And because it, uh, I tend 
I tend to read business books. I tend to read novels. I probably don't read as much historical nonfiction as I should. And the book club um, had a couple of members who were very much into it. And so one of the first books that we read, um, we read two different ones, and they were, ended up being really great discussions on what it means to lead. One of them is, is still a bestseller by Eric Larson called The Splendid and the Vile. And um, my aunt wanted to read it because, you know, World War II was something very you know, was was right there in front of her. And she wanted to think about how someone leads in dark times. And this particular book is all about uh, Winston Churchill's first year as prime minister when Germany was bombing them every single day. And somehow or another, this man, his voice, his character, whatever it was, all of those things that make up what a leader attributes are, enabled an entire country to fight off Germany and when there were so many times they could have just, you know, sort of waved that white flag. And it was really, really interesting. We then looked at, uh, we read David McCullough's The Wright Brothers, and there's a different kind of leadership. There are two guys with a mission, and they were not... Um, they were not big personalities, um, and they did something that changed the entire world. And um, I have done a podcast with Drew Dudley about everyday leadership moments. And I really feel like um, the Wright brothers have that sort of everyday leadership quality, but they also had, they were dogs with bones about this notion that we could fly. Yep. That's super interesting. And, you know, we, we feel like we're in this uh, so unique, particularly the younger people, this unique time. And it seems like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but it has seemed to do that many times in the past and we transcend. So where do you think you, you got your love of reading? Was that, you know, household thing? or? Um, uh, I know exactly where I got my love of reading. Um, and I got it from my mom. Uh, so my mom was a uh, librarian. <clears throat> And uh, worked, uh, I grew up on the south, I'd like to say I grew up on the south shore of Long Island, so I don't have to tell people that I actually grew up in Amityville. Oh, like the horror? Yeah, like the horror, <laughs> yes. Um, and I can't really offer you any details about that, whether it's true. I can't <laughs> believe how many people say, oh, you grew up in Amityville, did that, did that really happen? Like, is it, did they, was that house really haunted? Um, yes, and probably not. Um, but um, what happened was my mom worked at the Amityville Public Library, and um, I needed a job during high school. And I had an in at the Amityville Public Library, and my mom got me a job on Saturdays, and I did two things. I either covered books, which is a, you know, you put that plastic stuff on the... Exhilarating. I, yeah, it was exhilarating. Um, I got very good about it. I got very good at it. I'm not I, surprised because you like to fix air conditioners. Yes, yeah, so I do not like to fix air conditioners. I don't like to fix anything, but I'm very organized. You put your hands on my experiences, you end up liking it. <laughs> um, so I cover, either covered books or I did something that was called shelf reading, which right. is you would be, I would be given, uh, okay, Joan, go off to novels, authors, last name, A through G, and mm -hmm. shelf read that. And basically it meant putting things in alphabetical order or putting things in numerical order if you were in the, um, the nonfiction section. 
And, um, you know, it's really easy to daydream when you're doing that. And it's really also easy to, particularly in the nonfiction area, realize how many people write books and what they write books about. And I think I just got kind of an appetite for the notion that there was, like, all these books, like, they tell stories. And um, Did you be one of those writers once? Or not really? Um, it doesn't surprise me that I have that I have become a writer or that's one of the things that I do. I used to, if you got that cousin Gene of mine to sit down on a podcast and tell, uh, tell stories about me as a kid, I was a obsessive letter writer. And I wrote letters all the time. And um, uh, I have no idea. Well, actually, I do know what they, what they are all about because one day Jean sent me an entire box of them. the letters that we sent back and forth through high school and college when I lived on Long Island and her family had relocated to Atlanta. Um, so I, I, it doesn't actually surprise me for two reasons. One is I, I, I clearly did like to write. And secondly is... <clears throat> I like to tell stories. I, I believe that yes, that's yes, a, that's a, not just a Joan thing. That might be an Irish thing too. So I, I like to smell books. <laughs> well, then I, you, you know, I you should have got books. a job at the library because it's really book <laughs> no, smell. It's very like, book, book smelly there. Yeah, there's even. I think there's a perfume that's book smell. I, I have Ezra's name written all over this memory, but it's scattered. My son, I think, got either someone got him the perfume or he got someone the perfume um, book smell. But anyway, my question is: Do you like uh, uh, smelly you, books or non-smelly yeah, books? Like, you know, hardcover or do you like reading on a tablet now? What's your preferred mode? So I would say that most of the time I read a book on a, uh, on a tablet. And, yeah. I, and I do that for um, really, it's all about convenience. I yeah. can take it easily to the beach. Reading on the beach is like one of my all-time favorite things to do. If you go to my Instagram, you will occasionally see a picture of like my old feet, the ocean, and the cover yes, a cover of a book that I'm reading on on my Kindle. Um, yeah, what about audiobooks? Because I mean, I I sent out a survey to our listeners, and I heard a lot about your sexy voice. So I'm assuming that you you may like other authors' voices as well. So some people are like, "Oh my God, Joan is reading." Her book on Audible, she has the sexiest voice. I'm going to buy it on Audible. Um, you don't like listening to books? Uh, I'm, I'm still, I'm sorry, was there a question? <laughs> Medical waste, sexy. I'm sorry, my bad. Um, <laughs> the question is whether you like audiobooks. I have to tell you what, I have only listened to two audiobooks. And really? I had, we, we did a road trip from New York to Florida. And I had downloaded, um, Trevor Noah's book. But oh, yeah. I, I don't know. I actually like driving when it's quiet, honestly. Um, so, uh, but I did a a absolutely adore listening to uh, Obama read his first book, Dreams oh, of My Father. Oh, my God. I heard his too. Yeah. That one I, really I, I, I think that for me, um, uh, that's why I downloaded Trevor Noah, like Trevor reading his own book about his own story. Like mm -hmm. that's appealing to me. Yeah. But, I think usually when it's the author about themselves, it feels, yeah, better. it feels, it feels better it's somehow to them in some way, which I suspect is why you got that kind of feedback on, on yep. your audio. Yeah. The other thing, by the way, about, about tablets is that I can read it with the lights out in bed. 
And um, and now I can hear my wife cackling in the background because my Kindle only remains uh, vertical for about a nanosecond uh, before it collapses onto my chest. But I do. I like the idea of reading in bed. There you go. So um, we had Jim Collins on the podcast, which was so fantastic. And I know you rave about him. I mean, you've raved about him during workshops and retreats and on blog, gosh, in a bunch of places. Did he live up to what you thought of him when you uh, when you talked to him about the flywheel and good to great and whatever else he came on the podcast and discussed with you? I thought he was um, uh, <laughs> he was even better. Um, and I, I'm laughing because I I don't think I ever have had a guest who had listened to so many of my podcasts. I know. That was pretty uh, impressive. Right. So, like, I had um, I had done a podcast about being a great board chair with my, with my friend and colleague, Daryl Messinger. And, like, he threw out her name. And she, she called me. And she's like, oh, my gosh. Like, did you, did you feed that he to him? He did it all on his own. Yeah, no, he did. He actually really did his homework. And, um... I was really impressed by that. I was impressed by his authenticity, his genuine enthusiasm about doing the podcast, and um, and I and I really think that that's it's 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 interesting because there was a lot we had to go through to get Jim Collins to say yes. Yeah, and because some, he doesn't waste time. He he accounts for all of his time. Right, and I mean you know this better than I how hard we had to work to book him. Um, and so you often think that when you've worked that hard to book someone, that they see it as a sort of some obligatory nuisance, and and you're that and I, and I walk into it thinking, oh, am I? Gosh, I'm kind of imposing on this guy. He must have a million better things to do, and he just arrives so damn present. Yeah, and I just loved that, and I. Um, I aspire to be present like him in moments like that. Yeah. And and in all, I aspire to be present when, when my kids talk to me and I fly away in my head, but I try very much to bring myself back. I'm sorry. Did you just say something? <laughs> I, don't <know>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I flew away for a moment. Um, a lot of the books you mentioned are uh, are business books, or not, not that you mentioned now, but like uh, – Jim Collins, for example, or Michael Watkins, we had him on the podcast as well. And he talks about the first 90 days on the job. Um, do, do you typically look for people whose message or book is specifically uh, geared toward nonprofit leadership? Or do you, you know? Well, a lot of, so I do find myself drawn to books that I think can make me a better coach. Mm-hmm. Right. I, um, you know, so, uh, you know, my primary consulting work is coaching CEOs and executive directors of nonprofits, and I want to be really good at it. I will also <laughs> say that oftentimes the, those clients will say, um, would you recommend that I read something? And mm-hmm. so I liked, I'd like to have um, in, not necessarily the obvious books to, to send their way. Or I'll <clears throat> send them a chapter of something because they're usually quite busy. But um, m- the first 90 days on the job was really, um, first of all, Michael Watkins is brilliant. And he, and there's really a recipe to it. There's such a recipe to the first 90 days. And, uh, and I think that it aligned and enhanced my own coaching of people because I often coach 
executive directors who are new to the job, often after someone has retired or a founder has stepped aside, where there's going to be some sort of particularly gnarly situations. And, um, you know, I take the precepts in the book and then put it into the canvas of the nonprofit sector. So I'll take some of his precepts and I'll say, okay, so what are the key milestones in the first 90 days for you? When is your first executive committee meeting? When is your first board meeting, right? And use those as markers to build towards so that each of those, so that as we coach, we think about, we, we kind of cut those 90 days into 30-day chunks. It also is a way for me to sort of uh, validate or shift my own observation. So, you know, I have a blog post called Your First 30 Days as a, as a Nonprofit Executive Director. I actually like the image very much. It's a, a image of, a, of someone trying very hard to remain on a bucking bronco. Uh, and, um, and I was able to sort of validate my th some of my thoughts about what that first 30 days ought to look like with somebody that I consider to be an expert in thinking about the first 90 days. Yeah. So I use them in a bunch of different ways. Yeah, that, that, that it does sound applicable not only to like leadership transitions, first 90 days, changing a role, even when you change a role in a job, you, you, you know, it's going to, you're going to mark your team by your behaviors and what you do in those first. But you know, three. what's interesting is that and maybe we'll get to talking about this. Um, I also read books. So like The Splendid and the Vile is a very good example of, it's a book about World War II and, right, and, and England. And yes, of course, it's about leadership, but that's not necessarily, it may not in fact be what people, why people pick that book up, but it's why I picked it up, right? And so there's another book that I really enjoyed very much. I like, I like snapshot books, rather than books that cover really, really long periods of time. Mm -hmm. So um, Jonathan Alter, who lives here in our, my hometown of Montclair, New Jersey, wrote, um, and there are so many books about um, FDR. Yeah. I thought, what book could Jonathan Alter write about FDR that would be new? And I was, and, it, um, and he wrote a book called the, Defi uh, the, the Defining Moment. And it was about the first 90 days of FDR's presidency. And so when I read that, I start, picked up my Michael Watkins book, and I'm looking at the two of them to see what did FDR do that was interesting? What can I glean from what FDR did? Then I started to think about, well, we have a new administration. How are they doing the 90 days? So I spend a lot of time in my head <laughs> sort of connecting all of these um, connecting all of these dots and grabbing from what might not seem to be a nonprofit leadership book, things that are really interesting and can be um, good insights uh, for my work. Yeah. And when we were talking earlier today, we talked a little bit about Connect, um, Carol Robbins' book. Um, that's one of your more recent books, right? And also one of our recent podcasts. What I loved about this book... Uh, is that it is uh, it was birthed out of one of the most popular courses in the Stanford MBA program. And it, I don't know what this course is really called, but they call it the touchy-feely class. Yes, yeah, she did. And um, I am just so absolutely convinced that your ability to be an excellent leader and manager comes from your, um, you know, what they call your EQ. Mm -hmm. 
your ability to listen, your ability to empathize, your ability to have a difficult conversation, to offer constructive feedback, right? Um, all of these kind of attributes are soft skills. And, um, and I think that that's what Stanford actually found, is that if you don't actually give this material to their MBA students, they are not as successful as they are when you do. Yeah, because it's so much interpersonal dynamics, and it's a business class, right? It's 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 because we all know that you know the people who get A's on their book reports aren't the most successful people, and aren't necessarily the most successful people in the world, um, and. Um, and so there's a what I also like about Connect is that it is um, a kind of a workshoppy book so that you can read it and you can do some exercises from it so that you get a taste of what this touchy-feely class is about. And I and I think it also I read it and then when I'm talking to somebody about performance reviews of their staff or their own performance review. I can start to talk about those soft skills and ask where those things are on the performance review document. Because you can have somebody who crushes all their goals, but if they also crush their colleagues like bugs, right, that's a problem. <laughs> and But we don't measure that. We don't evaluate those things. And so I thought that bringing that book to life and reading it would help me to make that case for my clients. You're listening to Nonprofits Are Messy. Thank you for joining me today. In case you haven't picked up my latest book, during COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my first edition of Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is in paperback, and you can learn more about it at book.joangary.com. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, another one uh, you talked about, and maybe you can tell me more about, because we've spoke about it briefly, and maybe also tell me how it applies to nonprofit leadership, was the Tim Harford book. I think it was The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. Yeah, so um, this is a kind of an interesting one. Um, I had not heard of this book before, um, but... Um, many of you, well, of course you know that this podcast is called Nonprofits Are Messy, and I'd never mean it in a pejorative sense. I mean it in a structural sense, that it's just when um, the, you know, the person who's in charge is overseen by people who've never done their job, who are all volunteers and who have all have other day jobs. When you have to actually rely on volunteers who get paid nothing to have the kind of impact in the world that you want to have. These kinds of things make the structure of nonprofits very messy. And I was having this conversation with Vu Lei, who um, is also a, a very well-known blogger and in the nonprofit space. And he was trying to get me to change the name of my, my blog and my podcast because he felt like I was letting people off the hook. And so I really wanted to sort of think about this word messy and try to think whether or not Vu had a point or not. And so I found this book um, by Tim Harford called Messy, The Power of Disorder to Transform Our Lives. 
record is. And you can see I actually use it quite frequently. It's dog-eared and has some post-its and stuff. Um, but it captured for me what I meant by sort of it's hardwired messy, but there are treasures to find in it. Um, as long as you sort of accept the messiness. And um, uh, there's actually a story at the beginning of the book that might, do you think I should? Can you read a little bit of yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I can actually. I think it's a pretty short story, um, but it has stayed with me long after I finished the book. Um, and some of you may actually um, know this story, but it, it happened in 1975. Um, I feel like, oh, I'm like reading a book to everyone. Um, Professor Joan. Yeah, and it was, um, it all took place in January of 1975 in Cologne uh, in an opera house. And there was a 17-year-old German girl named Vera, and she had the amazing good fortune to program this particular concert. And somehow or another, she persuaded the Opera House to host a late night concert of the improvised jazz pian uh, pianist, American jazz pianist, Keith Jarrett. So the concert's a total sellout and she is on cloud nine, right? And um, so Jarrett comes in for the rehearsal and he takes one look at the piano. It's like five hours before the concert. And he says, this is, this is a piece of trash and I can't play this piano. And unless you get me a Bosendorfer by seven o'clock that has these requirements, I will not perform. Oh, poor girl. So she obviously turns the world upside down, inside out and backwards, and is, in, is not successful in getting, meeting the requirements of Keith Jarrett. And um, of course she is, as you can imagine, just like beside herself. She's got a sold out crowd ready to see Keith Jarrett. And she tried to find, she tried everything she could to find a replacement. Um, and then she had a piano tuner come in to try to fix it, but he could do nothing about the muffled ba bass tones, the plinky high notes, and the simple fact that the piano just didn't make a loud enough sound to reach the balconies in the opera house. So Jared said, no, I'm not performing. And he sits in his car, it's pouring rain. The best day of this woman's life has just become her worst day. And so she runs in the pouring rain. She catches up with, with Jarrett, and through the window of his car, she begs him to play. The young pianist looked out at the bedraggled German teenager standing in the rain and took pity on her. Never forget, Jarrett said, only for you. A few hours later, as midnight approached, Jarrett walked out, onto the, out to the unplayable piano in front of a packed concert hall and began to play. The minute he hit the first note, everyone knew the music was magic. That night's performance began with a simple chiming series of notes and then gained complexity as it moved by turns between dynamism and a languid soothing tone. It was beautiful and strange and enormously popular. The album has sold 3.5 million copies. No other solo jazz album or solo piano album has matched it. When we see skilled performers succeeding in difficult circumstances, we habitually describe them as having triumphed over adversity or despite the odds. But that's not always the right perspective. 
Jarrett didn't produce a good concert in trying times. He produced the, sh the performance of a lifetime, but the shortcomings of the piano actually helped him. Hmm. So and, and uh, you know, I read this and I thought, I want, I, I need, so this is very nice. Thank you for letting me read that. I, I feel like it is, um, it's kind of the, the heroics of nonprofit leaders, yeah. right? That, that they, <laughs> right, is we don't, I don't want the people listening to this podcast to think they have a crummy piano and they're going to do the best they can with a crummy piano that they, they can make magic and beautiful music with the piano they have. Oh, that's really great. I love that. Because I, when I first saw it, I was like, what the heck does this have to do with nonprofit leadership when I saw that on your list? Um, and I think you had, well, we had talked about a couple of others, and I, I don't know if you uh, want to mention them or not. One of them was uh, One Day All Children. It was, about the, the, it was written by the founder of Teach for America. Yeah, And the other one was Ordinary Grace. Um, if, if you feel like you still want to talk about them, I feel like we have a little bit of time. And yeah, I'd love to hear about yeah sure. Ones. So One Day All Children is a very, very good. So it is, it, it is the memoir, uh, uh, the biography, I guess, of uh, Wendy Kopf, the founder yeah. of Teach for America. And it is the perfect uh, uh, picture of a dog with a bone founder. I am going to create this thing. She was a senior in college. Um, you will read the first several chapters, and if you are a founder of a nonprofit organization, you will laugh because you will see yourself. And what you will see as the book unfolds is you'll see mistakes that she makes because she's moving too quickly or she wasn't listening. I don't know um, anything about that. She will, you will, and you will um, see her take on, sort of grow the mission, sort of, I would say, a not mission creep, but, it, you know, she was a dog with a bone about a very particular mission. And you'll see that she adds a program at some point that may or may not have been the right thing to do. And you will see a founder contending with, massive controversy. I mean, many people understand the controversy that Teach for America presents of sending, you know, sort of, again, the, the narrative is, not the reality, the narrative is privileged white kids get sent into, you know, schools with low income students who have no lived experience. Sort of who the hell do they think they are? And, and that blew up in her face in a massive way and sort of how she was able to deal with it or not able to deal with it is also another great object lesson for nonprofit leaders. Yeah, so it doesn't always have to be a flattering picture of someone. It, ha it has more to do with the reality and what you do with what you're learning in that journey. Correct. Um, so I was gonna ask you if, uh, if you sometimes just read trashy novels for fun. Well, I'm not sure if you're comfortable with answering that. Um, so I, I, do know, I do know that uh, murder mysteries are also on your list. Well, so. At least this one. So I just, actually one of our book club books I really, really loved is called Ordinary Grace by William Trent Kruger. Um, and I'm delighted that I picked it up. Uh, it, it is, it is, 
it's sort of a combination murder mist. It's got it's got a sort of a To Kill a Mockingbird vibe combined with the Hardy Boys, oh, uh, and and it has this very 1960s feel to it, and the character studies are really really. Um, richly drawn, and um, so I would not. I, I would highly recommend it, uh, but I. But not. I'm not saying that. You know, this is a murder mystery. If you're if you're a big fan of murder mysteries, you'll love this book. Actually, I just think it was just a really beautifully written book. So you you you, uh, you were saying how there was a combination of when you mentioned the Hardy Boys. Is is that something you used to read growing up? Um, so. Uh, yeah, so I um, uh, that, this probably probably the I mean you know I don't know what kind of books I read as a kid particularly, but I do know my brother Tom had every single Hardy Boy the entire Hardy Boy book collection, and I um, you know I was the youngest of youngest and only girl, and I liked to sort of emulate my older brothers. And so I ran right through all of the Hardy Boy books. And I loved them. I had a, I I never really build anything because I'm decidedly unhandy, but I did build something up in a tree that enabled me to climb up into a tree. And it was sort of like a chase lounge with a table so that I could, oh like, so that I could, <laughs> I could put my feet up and I could have like iced tea and I could read my Hardy Boy books. So I have very That's fond so memories cool. of that. There was no Nancy Drew was not happening for me. She was not on your list. No, she wasn't. No. So the the nonprofit leadership lab has um, a, a superhero logo with a cape. Did you did you like that kind of book? Did you have a favorite superhero when you were a kid? No, I actually the the whole comic book graphic novel thing was totally lost on me. Um, my wife actually her first uh, job after she decided not to be an actor was. Uh, uh, at Marvel Comics, so she she actually was part of a team that designed one of the first female superheroes, something called the Dazzler. Um, so we have a lot of vintage comic books around the house, and my brother John was obsessed with comics and had a very very valuable comic book collection. But we left the comics. I thought comics were kind of st- kind of. Sp- I like the Brazilian comic Cebolinha because I was in Portugal at that age, so I would get them all from my brother and 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 read them. That's. Yeah, no, I, I I get that people are really obsessed with them, but it just was never, that never was never my thing. So um, another person that I recently booked, and I'm not sure where it'll come up on the lineup, but most likely before this, uh, was the author of Tiny Habits, B.J. Fogg. He's coming up. And, um, you know, and of course, creating small habits, the, the whole idea is that it leads to big change, which also was a little bit of the theme of the lollipop moment conversation totally, you had. Totally, totally. Um, and and why did you think that was a good book to talk to, to um, about? So I think that um, I um, I think that nonprofit leaders can get into a, a big state of overwhelm and get into ruts about it. Yeah, like it's there's always just too much. And um, I think of tiny habits the same way I think about sort of when you take your toddler to the pizza parlor and the and Dino, the pizza guy, takes the pizza knife and cuts the pizza into little pieces that the toddler can eat. I sort of think about B.J. Fogg like Dino, the pizza guy, that he helps you think about how to take, how to build habits by sort of cutting them into bite-sized pieces. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, he tells a story about, um, you know, building a habit by adding something to a habit you already have, which I think is really super interesting. Um, and so, for example, he talks about he gets up in the morning and he uses the bathroom, and then he did two push-ups. And then when he finished doing, when, he, when those felt really easy, he increased it to like four. And over a period of time, he was doing 70 push-ups a day. How much time that man spent in the bathroom? <laughs> you know, I don't think I, I don't think I, I, I don't back. think, I, no, I don't think so. Um, <laughs> but I think that, that there's a lot to developing habits. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I think that our conversation with, B, the conversation with BJ was about really sort of also about this notion of how do I get to the things that are on the bottom of my to-do list, those things that are always there yeah, and they just, just there, they right just haunt me? And is there a way to create some kind of habit where I chip away? Because every time you look at that to-do list and you see that same thing there, really it takes unearthed. a little bit of gas out of your tank. It does. It's absolutely true. My, that's those things that you see come up on my reminder list are continually, you know, just bothering me. And, it, and it's a series of them, but um, they fall to the bottom of the list. But I guess I'm going to listen to the podcast and see if I could learn something. Well, maybe you'll write that novel then, because that's, one of, well, really that's one of your to-dos, as I recall. Well, this is a lot of summer reading. Um, thank you for all of this. And I'm going to close it on one, one last question. Sure. You're on a deserted island. You have one book, zero cocktails, it needs to be a funny book, have some life lessons, and be something that you can reread. I'm sorry I didn't prepare you for this question, but if you have something that comes to mind, which book would that be? Um, let's think. So Cindy knows that um, on my bookshelf, I have a stack of what I sort of call my, sort of my Jones, my, my favorite Joan books. Yeah. Um, and... Um, I think there's something by Anna Quinlan there. I think that there's definitely something by Mr. Rogers there. Um, I'm trying to remember what else is there. Um, I don't remember what else is there, but I think the book I probably would take is by David Sedaris. Oh my God, uh, really? Yeah, David Sedaris. I uh, love him. So David Sedaris usually, so I, um, when I first started thinking about writing, I thought I wanted I wanted to write like David Sedaris. I've written a yeah. bunch of different essays about my family and stuff like that that are just sort of on my shelf somewhere. But um, I thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to go and I'm going to put all these essays together and I'm going to make a book and it's going to be just like David Sedaris. Uh, but just, like that, huh? but but David Sedaris actually had all of his articles published first, and then these things are compilations. Yeah. But anyway, David Sedaris, his my favorite book of his is called "Me Talk Pretty One Day," and um, I mean, even saying the title of the book makes yeah. me laugh because <laughs> the one essay that I I I can't get through without weeping with laughter is he moves to France with his husband Hugh. And he decides to take French lessons. And this essay is written from the perspective of the French teacher who is listening to people struggle their way through French. And then he sort of, Sedaris imagines the teacher listening to them saying these things. Like, why do you want to learn French? 
me talk pretty one day <laughs> is how it comes out. Like it's, I, I cannot do it any justice. So one is I just think he's hilarious. I think he's hilarious. The second thing is um, I think about the fact that he just talks about Hugh, his husband, and there's no, um, never, not a single one of his books ever talks about it just it just is. David is a gay man whose husband's name is Hugh, and um, and I you know I know it's not easy like that for many LGBT people, but I think that David actually does. Sedaris does such a great job of incorporating Hugh into um, into his work very seamlessly, and I think that that's often. I mean, I I feel like I do that in my blog posts and in the leadership lab, um, that Eileen has a certain kind of character, um, and, you know, and I talk about her gardens, et cetera. And I just, I think it's, um, it's a pretty subtle kind of, uh, way to change hearts and minds. And I always really admired that about David Sedaris's work. I love that. And he came to South Orange a few years ago. Yeah, I know I did. Yeah. So thank you very much for letting me interview you. Now you're up there in the ranks of the icons that came into my life. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I hope we do this again because it's a whole lot of fun. I, um, I, I totally agree. You can invite me back on my own podcast anytime. <laughs> thank you, Joan. All right. See ya. Bye. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.